Welcome to the Radiant Visalia podcast. Join us at one of our two services, 9 a.m. and 1045 a.m. Download the Church Center app or visit our website, radiantvisalia.com, to stay connected with us. All right, enjoy. message to Jonah, son of Amittai, get up and go to the great city of Nineveh, announce my judgment against it, because I've seen how wicked its people are. But Jonah got up and went in the opposite direction in order to get away from the Lord. He went down to the seacoast, to the port of Joppa, where he found a ship leaving for Tarshish. He bought a ticket and went on board hoping that by going away to the west he could escape from the Lord. But as the ship was sailing along, suddenly the Lord flung a powerful wind over the sea, causing a violent storm that threatened to send them to the bottom. Fearing for their lives, the desperate sailors shouted to their gods for help and threw the cargo overboard to lighten the ship. And all this time Jonah was sound asleep down in the hold. So the captain went down after him. How can you sleep at a time like this, he shouted. Get up and pray to your God. and Maybe he will have mercy on us and spare our lives. Then the crew cast lots to see which of them had offended the gods and caused the terrible storm. When they did this, Jonah lost the toss. What have you done to bring this awful storm down on us, they demanded. Who are you? What is your line of work? What country are you from? And what is your nationality? And Jonah answered, I am a Hebrew, and I worship the Lord, the God of heaven, who made the sea and the land. Then he told them that he was running away from the Lord. The story of Jonah is a simple story. The story of Jonah is probably a story that you're familiar with. The story of Jonah is not a kid's story. The story of Jonah was not a kid's story to Jesus. And the story of Jonah teaches us in a really concrete way about sin and grace. You've heard those words before. Uh, Maybe you've heard them often. And maybe you've actually asked the question, what do people mean when they're talking about sin? And what do people mean when they're talking about grace? And what the story of Jonah helps us understand is what the Bible means when it says sin and grace. And it is essentially this, because the story of Jonah is about a man running from God. Pretty simple story. About a man running from God, and about a God who chases him. About a God who pursues him. About a God who wants to intercept his self-destructive behavior. And so, here it is. You ready for this uh, really profound uh, theological definition? Sin is running and grace is chasing. Sin is running from God. Grace is God's attempt to intercept and pursue us. So every one of us can relate to Jonah in this way. Right? Every one of us could, just like we stood up here last week and told stories about how we've heard God's voice, 
every one of us could probably stand and tell some pretty funny stories about our futile attempts to escape God. And I'm, I actually think it'd get actually pretty funny. At once we stopped crying, we'd probably start laughing because we recognize now that running from God is a little bit like watching a cops episode where some guy is on foot and there's everybody around him in a helicopter or in a vehicle and there's no shot that this guy's going to get away, yet he keeps running. Even when they've got him surrounded, he keeps running. They have to put him to the ground and put his hands behind his back and drive his face into the concrete. And he still thinks he's going to get up and run. And every one of us could tell stories about our attempts to run from God. And every one of us could tell stories about God's pursuit of us in those times. I was uh, driving two days ago. And I was driving past this guy who I hadn't seen in quite some time. And the last time I did see him, I saw him at a Christian conference. And so I pulled over. And I said, hey, man. And he's like, hey, is that Travis? And I was like, yeah, you want to ride? And you could just tell it was like he knew that God was actually pursuing him. And he wanted to say, no, I'll keep walking. But something in him said, yeah, I'll, I'll get in the car. I'll take a ride. And so this, this guy, Jason, that I know, hopped in the car with me, and, and he started telling me his story, right? And it's a story much like the ones we could probably sit around and tell about how something tragic had happened in his life, and he had been running from God. And today, uh, you know, he, he informed me that as I saw you pull up... Um, it was one of many things that had been going on in this young man's life that to him um, was making him really aware that God was pursuing him. Right? You've had those times before where you're running and then all of a sudden these events start to unfold and you start to realize, wow, God is knocking. Will I respond? Will I answer? Will I open the door? Again, that scripture actually wasn't written to an unbeliever, but to the church. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. And I think God can be knocking on the hearts of people uh, inside this church just as much as those outside the church. I often uh, get the... (laughs) privilege of being the face that reminds people that they're running from God. It's actually a pretty like uh, terrible job. Every uh, trip to the cellar door to see a show involves seeing somebody who is running from God, who sees you and is reminded <laughs> that maybe they've had a few too many, and maybe it's been a few too many weeks since they've been in church. And so it never fails that about halfway through the show, someone walks up to you and is like, You know, man, ever since my mom got sick, you know, and then they tell you why they're running from God. And then they actually start to tell you why um, they've been unsuccessful. Everybody's story is the same. They've run from God and they've been unsuccessful. I've I've never yet heard a success story of someone accomplishing uh, this, this idea of running from God. So, 
we relate to Jonah as runners. I know you may hate running. I hate running. I hate soccer because I hate running. And I love baseball because I hate running. But we can relate to God as runners. Uh, we, sorry, we can relate to Jonah as runners. We can relate to Jonah as those who hide. And if you don't know that you're a runner, and if you don't know that you hide, you don't know yourself. And I got this sense yesterday because I uh, was playing hide-and-seek with Avery and, and Remy. And Avery, if she's not found, actually, she hides because she wants to be found. In fact, she doesn't want a good hiding spot. She really doesn't. In fact, if, we and, if me and Remy have not found her, in probably about two minutes, she'll give herself up. I was in the closet. <laughs> and yesterday, as I talked with Jason uh, in the car, I could tell that he was running and he was hiding but deep down, he wanted to be found. Deep down, he wanted to um, know that a father was pursuing him and that it mattered, you know? And uh, I think each of us have uh, different strategies of running and hiding that we're going to talk about today. But I know deep down our desire is to be found. And I pray that God would find you this morning. That the Holy Spirit would, would haunt you. The essence of sin, I want to say, is running from God. And the first step in having relationship with Him is to admit that you have run from God and in some ways you're still running from God. I don't believe that the first step of Christianity is coming to a place that you believe that you're a self-sufficient person and you just need to get it together and go to church more. I don't believe that that's the first step of Christianity. Nor do I believe that the first step of Christianity is to admit and confess that you're just a broken person, just a hurting person. Sorry. That happened at a wedding once. I was doing the wedding and it was right here in my coat pocket and it started to create that interference. And as I walked back to the DJ to hand the mic back, he was like, man, what was up with that interference? And I was like, I don't know, man. <laughs> Somebody didn't turn their phone off. What? So I don't think it's necessarily to admit that you're a broken and, and a suffering person. I feel like the first step of Christianity is to confess that you're a fugitive. That you're a runner. We see with Adam and Eve, right after they sinned, what did they do? Ran, hid from God. Every one of us here has the same nature. If you don't see that you're a runner, if you don't see that you hide, you don't know yourself. Don't you, uh, 
This is me, but don't you love the people who won't ask for directions? I'm one of those people. In fact, I can, I, there's something about it that... I don't want to admit that I don't know is part of it, you know? But some of it is just a sheer frustration that my wife so quickly turns to her iPhone. She doesn't ask me where we're headed. She doesn't ask me where she thinks you know, we should turn or where we should go. She just turns immediately to her phone. And, and I don't know why uh, it's as frustrating as it is to me. It's almost like um, insults me as a man like wanting to provide for our home that she would go so quickly and do a Yahoo like search you know I'm, I hate that Eric does that too actually like we're having a conversation and immediately he's like typing in a couple like search words to like check on maybe what I'm telling him or to or to go no that's not true or it's like he can find the information faster than I can give it to him and it's so frustrating and the same is true with Tiff, it's like, hey, put the phone away, all right? I know where we're going here, you know? I, I know where we're going. Grocery stores, I'm pretty good. I'll ask. I'll ask where I'm at, and I'll ask, you know, where it is I need to go to get what I need. Um, directions in a vehicle, I, I want to I find it. I don't, wanna, I don't want anyone else to do that for me. And I think that the point that I guess I want to make is that no one is as helplessly lost as the person who won't admit that they're lost. And I can't actually think of a better way to summarize Jesus' teachings in the Gospels. No one is as helplessly lost as the person who won't admit that they're lost. No one is as helplessly lost as the person who won't ask. And if you don't know that you're a runner... And you don't know that you hide. You don't know yourself. So Jonah, he receives a calling from God. He proceeds to run from God and then God pursues him. This is the story in the book of Jonah. So I want to talk about calling for a little bit. And then I want to talk about running. So Jonah gets his orders from God. And he opens his orders, and God says to him, Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. That was awesome. Get up and go to the great city of Nineveh. Announce my judgment against it, because I have seen how wicked its people are. God doesn't pull any punches, right? He's asking a preacher to go to the biggest, the baddest, the most powerful city, go to the center of that city, stand up and preach that they should repent and turn towards God. And in Jonah's defense, because I am going to come to Jonah's defense, I think that those are irrational and unreasonable orders. I do. Unreasonable and irrational. If I got those orders, I would struggle with those. And I think many of us would. 
And I think, as, as I think about it, as I thought about these orders, I do think I could probably maybe muster the courage to go do what God has asked me to do. Can you imagine if you got orders to go stand in the center of, you know, let's just say it was even Los Angeles or San Francisco or a big city. Stand at the center of that city and preach. Call them to repent and to turn towards God. Many of us might muster up the courage to go do so, but I really wouldn't believe that it would have any sort of effect on the city of San Francisco. I mean, I think that, I, I, you know, obviously Jonah's dealing with a little bit of a different scenario and that he's risking his life, really, to go um, preach in Nineveh. And I don't think we would be in doing so in Los Angeles or San Francisco. Can you imagine doing what Jonah did in any city? And can you imagine expecting results from it? What are the chances that anything will happen? These are unreasonable and I think in in some ways irrational uh, orders. And I want to say that sometimes God gives us unreasonable orders. And things that seem to us to be irrational. How could this be? How could this possibly produce anything in the city of Nineveh? Why would I waste my time? Nothing is going to happen. (laughs) Another, is it okay if I pick on you today, Eric? Okay, great. I remember uh, a day, I was probably like 20, 20 years old maybe, I was working at Copeland's and I was in a conversation with Eric and Ryan McRae about how there was something wrong with us because we were scared to preach the gospel publicly. And I don't know if we had been like reading Timothy and some of Paul's instructions to him to, um, to read aloud scripture or, or what, whatever it was, but we got in this conversation like, what is wrong with us? How come we just can't stand up in the middle of the mall and do what we do here on Sunday morning? So then we forged a plan. On Friday night, I will pick you up and we will not come home until we've preached the gospel publicly. Somewhere. Somehow and real loud, and so we got in the car and we probably you know got together a little after dinner, and we drove around till probably midnight, man. Going okay, all right, hey, pull over. No, okay, not now, not now. Okay, uh, finally, I think Eric was the first one to go, and he did it in the uh, the In and Out parking lot. He just hopped out of the car. Okay, listen up. He says, and he starts preaching the gospel, you know. And again, we we mustered up the courage to do so, but I can tell you that there were zero results. (laughs) Uh, Maybe we got flipped off. I don't know. It was not good. Didn't didn't produce quite what we thought it was. We thought it was going to be this axe, you know, um, this Pentecost experience where we were proclaiming the gospel and people were, you know. 3,000 maybe added to the church. Um, I, actually, I actually went at Denny's. It was probably like midnight. And we're sitting at Denny's. And I'm like, I'm going to pre- stand up in Denny's and preach. And <laughs> So I stood up. This is a great... I spent, I spent way too little time on the sermon and, and uh, way too much time reliving memories last night. But I stood up at Denny's and I proposed a toast. I was like, I'd like to propose a toast. (laughs) And then I started talking about the bride and groom. And then a little bit later on in the toast, I started sharing, you know, that Jesus is this groom and he's coming back for his church that is the bride. You know, and everyone's just like, man, 
you're on drugs, dude. The bus guy from Denny's walked up to me and he's like, hey, could you wrap it up? Or something like that. Like, everyone feels uncomfortable. So we might be able to muster up the courage to go do it, but to expect results from doing something like that in a huge, powerful city, um, I think might be a little bit irrational. Again, I want to say that God calls us at times to do these things. We see it in Scripture. God calls people to do irrational... I keep merging these words. For the sake of time, we're just going to make these two words one and call it irrational. God calls us to do irrational things. In war, in war, when a general decides, when he decides something, when, when a general decides that he needs one regiment to attack enemy lines, he needs one brave regiment to attack enemy lines and to draw fire. When he needs one regiment to go forward and cause a distraction so that he can send other regiments around and put the squeeze on the opposing army. How does the general go about asking that regiment to go forward? How does he go about asking that one regiment that say, Hey, look, this is a suicide mission. I'm calling you to draw fire and to cause a distraction so that we can win from the sides. Does the general sit down with every one of the soldiers and say, the night before, sit down with every one of those soldiers and say, Hey son, I'm going to call you tomorrow to, to march. And I want you to know that I've got a plan. This may look to you like a suicide mission. This may look to you like I'm asking you to sacrifice your life so we can advance. But I want you to know that I've got a plan and I want you to know that in the end everything's going to work out. And then does the general give this, this young soldier a hug and say, Now tomorrow you be brave. And then move to the next tent to explain to the next soldier what is about to go on. I don't know... I've not been a part of the army, but I'm guessing there are some here that have. And I don't think that that's what the general does. I think the general actually gives one word, and that is charge. Charge. And there is no explanation. There are no words of comfort. There is one word that he gives to this regiment, and that is charge and in a good army they go because each soldier takes refuge in the record of the general they take refuge in the character of the general they say, they say things like look we've been through many battles with this guy before and we know that he's smart we know that he's wise, we know that he's good, and we know that he cares. And so this regiment of soldiers goes forward, taking refuge in the character of their general.
take refuge in it, and they go. And what I want to say is that God sometimes does the same things. We can open our orders from God and feel like they look crazy. We can get orders from God that feel crazy. And there is no explanation at times. And there are no words of comfort. There is one word, and that is go. Something like this happened to Abraham, if you remember. He opens his orders, and I would say that Jonah's were better than his. Because the word that he gets from the word, from the Lord, is take your son and kill him for me. No explanation, no word of comfort. No general sitting down with a soldier and saying, I've got a plan. This is how this is going to work out. And why did Abraham go? Why did he do what he did that day? He took refuge in the character of God. He didn't take refuge in his own wisdom. He didn't take refuge in his own feelings. He took refuge in the character of God. Actually, Abraham says this, Shall not the judge of all the earth go right, do right? Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Abraham says, I know who my God is, and I know what His promises are. I know His record And I believe in His record. I believe in His name. So when God came to Jonah to ask him to do something unreasonable, or what seemed to Jonah to be unreasonable, Jonah took refuge in his own feelings. Jonah took refuge in his own thoughts about it. And I think when God comes to us and He gives us orders, we can do one of two things. Especially when we feel like those orders are unreasonable. Or they don't feel like they're looking out for number one. We can do one of two things. We can take refuge in the record and the character of God. Or we can take refuge in our own thoughts about it and our own feelings about it. And I would say that when tough decisions come your way, you do one of those two things. Maybe a mixture of them. So it's up to you what you're going to do. The first question that I want you to ask the person that you're sitting with is, have you been getting any orders lately that seem unreasonable? Have you been opening orders from God that seem almost suicidal? Why would I do that? (laughs) Why would I say that? Why would I forgive that person? Have you been getting orders from God that aren't necessarily looking out for number one? Talk amongst yourselves. This is going to be brief, so get to it. Don't waste time. If you don't have anything to say, that's fine.
You're free to uh, continue the conversation a little later. My hope is that you'd actually become friends with the person you're talking to. So, so we can go one of two ways. We can go the Abraham way, and we can trust in the record and the character of God. Or we can go the Jonah way. Trust in our own thoughts. Trust in our own feelings. And the Jonah way is really interesting because the Jonah way says this. I'll take a boat in the other direction. I know what I'll take. <laughs> I'll take a boat in the other direction. And I want to talk a little bit um, about what we do and why we do it. Because I think there's some interesting stuff here in the book of Jonah. Because in Jonah chapter 1, we know what Jonah does. Right? We see what Jonah does. But it's not until chapter 4 that we learn why Jonah does what he does. And I think in the church, we spend so much time trying to address. Because what we see in Jonah chapter 1 is what's visible. It's what's on the outside. He runs. We can see it. He goes in the other direction. But Jonah's sin has two levels. It's behavioral and it's motivational. And in chapter 1, we see the way that Jonah behaves. But it's not until chapter 4 that we understand his motivation for behaving that way. And so often in the church, we want to deal with fruit sins. Because we can see the fruit, right? And meanwhile, we never address what's at the root of that. The root sins. We need to, as a church, learn to recognize the sin beneath the sin. When we do so, we'll find out, actually, that we're a lot more alike than we think. If you can learn to recognize the sin beneath the sin, it'll destroy self-righteousness. And I think it would have done the same for Jonah. So what's interesting about what Jonah does with his calling is he just doesn't he just, he doesn't say no and stay put. He actually says, "I'll take a boat. I'll get on that boat and I'll go in the other direction. I'm going to flee from the presence of the Lord," is what he says. And he goes down to the dock, and lo and behold, he finds a ship to take him. And I think what we need to see here in Jonah chapter 1 as we read this is that if you're looking for a way to escape God, there will always be a ship to take you. There will always be a ship to take you. Many of us actually have specific ships that we sail frequently. Your sin, you actually have a sin profile. You consistently sail the same way. When God asks you to do something, you, you board the same ship and head for the same things. Has anyone ever set themselves toward being obedient to God and, and seen the, <laughs> I guess what would be the harbor of boats that are available to run from Him? I think this is, uh, this is really evident when you've set yourself towards dieting. When I'm on a diet, it's like I drive down Main Street and those restaurants are like ships docked, promising to take me away. 
promising my escape. It's like I, I, you show up, you know, even at like a Christian gathering and they've got this incredible spread of hors d'oeuvres on the table. And you're thinking to yourself, these are lined up like ships ready to take me away. I want to run. I want to run. I think the other thing that goes on, you know, there's never, um, never any shortage of ships to take you away from the presence of God. Never any shortage. Author Michael Mangus, he writes about what he calls uh, signature sins. And the idea is that each of us have familiar ships that we sail. And our sins have patterns. They're not random. Oh, I just bumped into this girl. It was so crazy. I don't know what happened. I do. (laughs) This isn't random. This is a pattern in your life. I don't know what happened, man. I was there and we were drinking. Yeah, I know. I've heard this before. This isn't random. There's a pattern that's been established here. You sail the same boats in the same directions. Our sins take consistent and they take predictable, they take really a predictable course. And I think we need to have an understanding of sin uh, that in some ways it's really unique to you. Now there's nothing that you're walking through that's not common to man, but the way that you walk through it is pretty unique to you. The idea that was pretty uh, revolutionary in this book for me is that he proposes that the pattern of your sin is related to the pattern of your gifts. Your sin, the ships that you sail, the ways that you run from God, the ways that you hide from God, are directly connected to the gifts and the values and the passions that God's put in your life. We don't get tempted by something that repulses us. We rarely get tempted by something that's 180 degrees in a different direction. We get tempted by things that are actually a little bit close to home and just a few degrees off. The the temptations that we face are directly connected to the way God's wired us. Just as fingerprints are unique and can be recognized, sin patterns and your sin profile can be recognized. If you're around somebody enough, they show up and you know what kind of mood they're in, right? It's like, oh, that mood. (laughs) Oh, this is familiar. Just as we can recognize each other by our gifts. Oh, you know so-and-so, they're like this and like this. We could also probably say, oh, you know so-and-so, and they're like this and like this. Oh, yeah, yeah, I know that person. I've seen that before. I've seen that face. Tomorrow night is a home run derby in, in baseball and, and, and they gather the you know, different players that are the best at hitting home runs. Well, the thing about these players is they're really gifted to hit home runs, but their gifting also exposes their vulnerability because home run hitters strike out a lot. 
And I believe that there is a direct correlation between your sin pattern, the directions that you go, and the way that God has gifted you. Extroverts who can inspire and encourage can also be prone to gossip. People who love to learn will be tempted to feel superior and talk down to others. Those who are spontaneous and have a great appetite for life will struggle with impulse control. Good listeners may become passive enablers. Optimists wander towards denial. If you tell me your gifts, I'll tell you your sins. I wanted to touch on a few of these. And then have another short conversation. And by short, I mean probably 30 seconds. But what, what one of these personalities do you identify with most? Reformers. Any reformers in the house? They have a deep love of perfection. They naturally have a high standard of excellence. And their greatest fear is to be flawed. At their best, they are crusaders, watchdogs, and prophets. But they wrestle with perfectionism and self-righteousness. They will be tempted to judge others whose standards are not so high. What about the server? The servers love to be needed. They're natural caregivers who will fluff up your pillow, even if it doesn't need fluffing. They remember birthdays and are the first ones up to do the dishes. Often servers work in positions where they support someone else and they'll feel most comfortable in a social gathering when they have something to do. While they are drawn to help, their helping can sometimes come out in their own neediness, come out of their own neediness. As a result, they can drain others if their giving becomes a form of taking. Underneath their servanthood sometimes lurks low self-esteem and demands to be fed, but can never get filled up. Sometimes servers marry an addict because that, that forms a kind of symbiotic relationship. Achievers, they love to conquer. Now I'd like you to think about yourself and not others. If that's what you're doing right now, stop. If you're one of those people who reads the Bible and thinks about others, stop. Oh, there's someone, they so need to hear this message. Achievers love to conquer challenges and perform before others. At their best, they're motivated to grow, stretch, and learn. They can inspire and move people to action. They often, they, and they often like to be in front of crowds, giving a talk, which is the most common fear in America, often energizes them. If they don't have a chance to develop and shine, they will lose motivation. Achievers want to make an impact on the world around them. Their temptation is that they can live for their images, idolizing their own performance. Unredeemed, they will be prone to measure their success in terms of applause and recognition. When the John the Baptist said about Jesus, He must increase, but I must decrease, he was stating the surrender that comes most difficult to an achiever. In the book of Acts, we read about a character named Simon Magnus who offered to give Peter money in exchange for a dose of the Spirit that would let Simon have a spectacular ministry. An unredeemed achiever can turn what looks like serving God into serving himself. 
the artists, any artists in the house, they love beauty and carry inside a strong desire to be unique. They love to express their individuality in bold ways and enjoy living on the margins. In different eras, they were beatniks, hippies, or punk rockers. They often have a very strong sense of what, of what kind of look they want to affect or what life they want to create that they cannot express in words, but that emerges in art or action. While they bring color and flair to the world that might otherwise be drab, their sensitivity can enslave them to emotional swings, and their desire to be special can become preoccupying. Their temptation is connected to the need to be different, and their need to be special and stand out, they may look down on ordinary people. They want to be bohemian. Thinkers like to know everything. At their best, they are investigators, scientists, and inventors among us. They love to discover truths that no one else has seen and to master a body of knowledge, a skill, or a hobby on their own. They often have amazing memories for the information that they are interested in, and they are often quite introverted. If you are a thinker, you probably like your own space. While thinkers love knowledge, knowledge can puff up. Sometimes thinkers love being right more than they love the people around them. They often don't express emotion or affection directly. More often they will express it through gestures or indirection. So it can feel as if they are takers and not givers. Thinkers do not lose an argument. And in their minds, that has never happened. They don't like to be interrupted. They can go on into solitude for hours, if not days. And that doesn't mean that they are more spiritual. They just have a low need to be around people. Thinkers are not fun to argue with, unless you are one. Loyalists, they were born to be a part of a team. They crave a cause to which they can give themselves and a community that they can believe in. At their best, they help everyone else become better. They are usually quite bright and often articulate, although they may not volunteer their thoughts. But they can, go, they can grow cynical when they feel let down, which is inevitable at times. They are tempted to want to shift responsibility to someone else. Enthusiasts are wired to be the life of the party. They can add zest and color to the lives of everyone around them. And in their perfect world, they would be the bride at every wedding and the corpse at every funeral. The enthusiast will often have a gift for storytelling. And they may talk about themselves a lot. If you talk with them about their problems, they may listen to you at first. But they are like Teflon. It just doesn't seem to stick with them. Saying cool, awesome, wow, fabulous, great. They can live for years without seeing the pain or darkness in other people or themselves. They are tempted to make life revolve around the pursuit of positive feelings and the desire for gratification. And they become miserable if they feel they are not getting enough attention. Commanders are created to understand power and leadership, to know how it works and to feel a natural pull towards this. If this is you, being strong is very important. You have a need to lead. Opposition actually energizes you. But power can become an end in itself, and you can get frustrated when you're not getting your own way. Other people may be frightened by you if they don't agree with you. 
If you're a commander, you don't like to be coached, taught, corrected, or led. Peacemakers have a natural love for serenity and tranquility. They thrive when life is calm. Peacemakers love the verse, how good and pleasant it is when God's people live in unity. Peacemakers can make an excellent therapist and mediators, make excellent therapists and mediators, and in the redeemed state, they bring reconciliation to families, neighborhoods, and workplaces. But peacemakers can be tempted to seek peace at any price, using their relational skills to blend in and avoid taking initiative or assuming risks because of their undue attachment to comfort. They often suffer from terminal niceness when courage is required instead. Which one of these are you most like? Which category best describes you? Tell a friend sitting next to you. See if that matches their observation of you. Talk amongst yourselves. Keep the conversation going. Unless you're a married couple, and then I would caution you in having this conversation. Lest it go down a familiar road on a familiar boat. So what Jonah did is he hopped on a boat and he went in the other direction. I want to touch on, and I mean touch on, really I promise, why he did what he did. We have to look at his motivation behind the way that he behaved. And so just to let you guys know, we're going to go for another 10 minutes together. So stick with me. Thank you for sticking with me. Thank you. What's really interesting is that Jonah chapter 4 reveals why Jonah did what he did. Look at this. That is why I ran away. And if you don't know the story... God saves Nineveh. That is why I ran away to Tarshish. I knew that you were a gracious God and a compassionate God, slow to get angry and filled with unfailing love. I knew how easily you could cancel your plans for destroying these people. So it wasn't failure that was the motivation for Jonah not to go to Nineveh. It was success. He knew that God would have mercy on this city. And by God, he did not want God to have mercy on this city. He wanted the dirty Ninevites to go down. These dirty pagans need to pay for what's gone on. And I won't be a part of calling these people to repentance and, and sharing your mercy and your love with these people. The motivation for Jonah to do, to do what he did now he ran, but the motivation for running was self-righteousness. He was a self-righteous man who was asked to preach grace and repentance, and he didn't know anything about it. God called him to go preach the gospel, and all he had was a religion of pride and pedigree. He couldn't talk about it.
his version of self-righteousness manifested itself in racism. Paul says this in Scripture, that each one of us go around trying to patch together a righteousness of our own. Each one of us go around trying to put together a righteousness of our own. Do you know what that means? That you have to feel superior to somebody, somewhere, somehow, to make yourself feel better about yourself. You go around. You. Stop thinking about somebody else right now. You go around. You do this. Putting together a self-righteousness of your own. Every one of us does this. Jonah's form of it was racism. It's a pretty typical way to feel better than somebody else. Racism, it's a fine way to be self-righteous. It works for a lot of people. It really does. It works for a lot of people. But this is not the only way to be self-righteous, is to be racist. Because some of you are sitting here and you can't stand racism. And so, you conveniently use your enlightenment to look down on others. You look down your nose, not at another race, but as an enlightened, educated person, you look down your nose at those narrow-minded bigots. And you are a racist towards racists. You are a Pharisee about Pharisees. That's not the only way we could use our religion to be self-righteous. Because we're religious and we're moral. We look down our nose at those that are immoral. Heretics. Heretics. What's really crazy is that even if you're a person who's got a really messed up and hurting life, you're here today and you know you've not gotten dealt a good hand. You have a really messed up, hurting life. And you can look down on those. Look down your nose that if, at those who've had it easy, that have lived successful or, or what you would presume to be enchanted kind of lives. And you can say to yourself, in order to make yourself feel better, I'm so much deeper than they are for having gone through what I've gone through. Paul has nailed it. We all go around doing this to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. We have to feel better than somebody, somewhere, somehow. If you are educated, you look down on popular culture. Look at the books they read. Look at the music they listen to. Black Eyed Peas, Justin Bieber, you know. I can't believe they take this. 
If you're one of the masses, you look down your nose at the educated snobs, right? You can take anything and use it as a means to feel superior to someone else. And this is what Jonah does. This is why I fled. I was afraid that you'd love those nasty people. Again, Jonah, he, they, God asked him, I want you to go preach gospel. And he was just like, nah, all I got's religion. All I've got's my pride, my national pedigree. That's what I got. That's what I've experienced. So Jonah experiences the grace of God. The gospel says this. The gospel says this. The, the gospel really makes it impossible to be self-righteous. Everyone is far off, says the gospel, and it's really bleak. There's no hope for you, says the gospel. Everyone is separated from God, and the only way that you can be accepted is by sheer mercy and free grace. The only way. Free grace. Unmerited favor. The only way. There's no room for feeling superior in the gospel. John Wimber used to say it's the cross plus nothing. Salvation is the cross plus nothing. Just let this erode the self-righteousness that you've patched together. Because to the degree that you understand the gospel... directly connected to you being really unable to think of yourself as superior than somebody else. If you feel superior, somehow the pride blocks God's grace. This is what we see in Jonah's life. As Christians, we are both rich and poor. As Christians, God has given us a great treasure and as Christians, God has given us a diamond, if you will, that we carry around. It is a part of our net worth. It is a part of our value. The problem was, is that it's a free gift. We were given this. And so it makes it impossible for us to walk around judging those who are wearing rhinestones. Religion is our attempt to appease and manipulate God, and it ends in either pride or despair. Either you succeed in your religious attempts, and it bolsters this self-righteousness, or you fail to measure up to the standards that you set, and it ends in despair. Religion says, if you obey God, He will love you. If you obey God, He will love you. And the Gospel says, because God loves you, you can now obey. Religion, if you are good, God will love you. Gospel, you're bad, God loves you. Doesn't that make you good? 
Doesn't that change your heart, your mind, and your emotions? Let's pray together. Monica, would you come? As a church, God, we want to confess that we're runners. As a church, God, we want to confess that we actually have strategies for hiding from you. As a church, we confess, God, that we've like patched together a righteousness of our own. We confess that we've looked down at others in order to make ourselves feel better about ourselves. And we want to receive the truth of the gospel that all of us were fallen and it's only by your mercy and your grace that we're accepted into your family and the only thing we can do today is receive it. So I pray that as a church we would receive the gospel so that we could preach the gospel. I pray that you would release people into the center of this city that know the heart of the gospel and aren't preaching religion. Thank you, Jesus, for your righteousness, for cloaking us in it. We love you today. Amen. Monica's going to um, worship, and we want to just open up this table so that we can partake in the body and the blood of Jesus Christ that has purchased for us righteousness and has made a way for us to connect with God. His grace and His mercy poured out. Have a good Sunday. Feel free to stay as long as you'd like. Thanks for listening. We want to be a resource for you as you walk with Jesus. So please connect with us at radiantbicelia.com. Until next time.